And hello everyone and welcome to Connected Learning TV. This is the third webinar in our August series titled Cultivating Global Entrepreneurial Learners in the Networked Age. I'm John Barroloni, the Community Manager for the Connected Learning Alliance and I'm going to be our host for today. And throughout this month on Connected Learning TV, we've been exploring examples of practitioners and learners who are leveraging the tools of the networked age to create opportunities for what John Seeley Brown would call entrepreneurial learning. And today we're going to be chatting specifically about how out-of-school learning environments can be especially helpful at inspiring entrepreneurial learning and also why we need more opportunities for kids to be able to tackle real-world problems and you know get more time playing outside and fun things like that. But before we dive into our chat, let's just go over a couple quick details. Um, to everyone who's watching live right now, we really welcome your comments and your questions either via the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning or via the Google Plus event page that we have up. And we'll do our best to address any questions um, that are coming in here in the Google Hangout. And we're also chatting throughout the month in the Connected Learning Google Plus community and using that same Connected Learning hashtag on Google+. So I'd like to give our guests a chance to briefly introduce themselves and kind of what brought them to the conversation today. So I'm just going to go from my left to right. So Alex, you want to start us off? Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, so I work with community organizations and schools and governmental agencies all across the country and find needs within cities where the contribution of young adults um, and their communities are legitimately transformative in the design of their schools, their neighborhoods, their public spaces, etc. And so um, nothing that we do is a simulation. Uh, everything is about actually taking action and taking action in such a way uh, by young adults that typically inspires much larger community engagement, change, etc. Thanks. And Monica? So um, for the last five-ish years, I've been um, experimenting and prototyping and listening with a lot of other people um, locally in Loveland, Colorado, and globally um, about what it means to be human and alive um, with a special focus on equity. Um, global equity, everyone getting a go every day. Perfect, thanks. And Nicole? Um, hi, um, thanks again for having me. Uh, my name is Nikhil Goyle. Um, I am 19 years old. I'm an activist. Um, written two books. One is on alternative forms of education out next year. Um, and I do a lot of research behind how children learn really unconventional models of learning um, as well as a focus on the maker movement and how that can be a transformative force in education in our communities today. Awesome, glad to have you. And Steve? Uh, I'm Steve Brown and I wear two hats basically. One is uh, um, I manage something called the New Learning Institute which is an organization that funds and develops programming for young people and increasingly does professional development for teachers around these sort of so-called new pedagogies from design thinking, games, maker and make, making and tinkering and so forth. 
And I'm also a documentarian, and I work only in education and do my best to document uh, the efforts of young people out mostly in the United States who are you know, deeply engaged in, in projects of their own based on their own interests um, and based on sort of a higher level of civic engagement. I've documented some of Alex's programs and Monica's as well. Perfect. Glad to have you here, Steve. So to get us started, a little bit of an intro question, and this will be open-ended, whoever kind of wants to jump in first. Uh, but I was reading an interesting article a couple days ago by Annie Murphy-Paul from the Heckinger Report talking about you know, most middle schoolers and high schools in the U.S. receive about 1,000 hours of in-school instruction time per year, but outside of school they're absorbing about 4,000 hours of digital media, so kind of a four to one ratio there. So I was just wondering from each of your own you know, very unique perspectives, what evidence or maybe some stories do you have where you're seeing that school is just perhaps one node on a learner's entire network? And again, whoever wants to jump in first there. Well, maybe I'll start because I have I did I do have this program on PBS called Is School Enough? So um, to some degree I may have started this um, not started this idea but have documented this idea that's that that school <clears throat> for for many kids, um, especially kids who are sort of interested in pursuing some of the things that they're interested in pursuing themselves. That school is really um, just one note on a continuum. I mean we we find young people all over the country who um, are more than anything, <clears throat> very resourceful about pursuing their interests, not just with, this, with respect to digital media, but with respect to all kinds of things. I mean, Alex's programs, for example, um, there's some use of, of software and, <clears throat> and so on and, and accessing the Internet, but there's also a tremendous amount of, of um, emphasis on participating in the community and using skill saws and other things um, that, are, that are somewhat more analog but are still interesting great tools to use to solve a particular problem. So I think um, th there's tons of evidence in the world that, that the, the quality of the work and the level of engagement and interest and motivation is, is very, very high outside of school with young people. In fact, I ask, every time I do an interview with a, with a with a kid, I always ask them if, if the sort of thing that they're doing in, if what they're doing outside of school is matched by something inside of school, they inevitably say no, which is which is somewhat disheartening and somewhat sad. Um, although I'm always somewhat, um, uh, uh, I'm always somewhat, it makes me enthusiastic about even more so about the work that they're doing on their own, um, on their own time and with their own resourcefulness. Who wants to jump in next on that starting question? I can go. Sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, a few years ago they banned running on playgrounds in Broward County, Florida. And, you know, this, this is completely linear, completely in line with, to a certain extent, what's happening right now with legislation around mothers locking, you know, leaving their kids in parked cars. Um, it's the same thing as some of the restrictions on what can happen in school. And in, in many respects, in a lot of respects, uh, we've kind of sucked the meaning and the excitement and the value uh, out of school. And 
So it's actually, you know, quite often much easier to work outside of school and to let teenagers really be and do, or be who they want to be and explore that actually even more and test the boundaries of that and we help them redefine that to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, they, <laughs> a lot of schools want to work with us but at, at the core one of the structural problems is they either can't get beyond the 45 minute period or uh, they can't leave the school except a couple times a semester. So that's, that's a significant structural problem to developing uh, meaning and, and tapping into the things that, that actually really deeply motivate students and, and make them want to come back for more and more and make them want to work incredibly hard and leave no stone unturned in terms of you know, doing, doing the very best they can and being the very best they can be. And I, I think that's, that's, I would agree with that point. And I think there's, um, I mean, you mentioned how we've, um, about the restriction of play, especially outside of school. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of these environments that, that were once very open and free for young people are just being restricted and closed off to them. Um, and, I mean, Bill, Peter Gray has documented this very well, where he's found that there's a, there's actually there could be a very strong correlation between the rise in mental disorders and um, psychological problems among young people and the decrease in play over the past 50, 60 years. Um, so I think, it, yeah, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of major issues out there um, in terms of that. And um, I'm, I'm just finding that young people are just very constrained and they, they're finding that school environments are already very restrictive and outside of school environments are um, becoming much more closed off to them and they're, 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 they're trying to find a place to go and it's becoming increasingly difficult. You know, I would just add that my reaction to reading that article was along the lines of, I mean, this is a deep issue if we really want a sustainable change and um, more of a mindset. So it's, it's more about if there's a control issue, if there's a compulsory issue. So we could just as well ruin the outside of classroom. You know, we could just as well control that if the people that are in those spaces playing feel like they're playing under someone else's rules that they have no say in, um, which I kind of I maybe read into it, but I got that feel towards the end of her article when she was talking about how then to change how people spent those 4,000 hours you know, outside of class. And it sounds... Oh, go ahead, Steve. Well, I was going to say, there's also sort of a difference between um, uh, the act, some of the activities that kids do that are organized outside of school and, some, and the ones that, are, that, that they're doing on their own for whatever reason. And, you know, there are a lot of well-meaning and well-intentioned organizations that bring kids together to accomplish a particular goal. Um, and, I, and I, again, I think public workshops are a great example of that. And then there are kids that we sometimes find to document who, who are, for one reason or another, just interested in a topic and they go out and figure out how to do it. And I think the, the kids that are, the individual kids who go out and figure out how to do the thing are, that's quite a different um, phenomenon, I would say, than, um, than organizations that try to organize kids around meaningful and, and deep work and deep problem solving. And that that, I think, to Monica's point, sometimes can 
um, that experience can sometimes seem as superficial as the experience in school that sometimes kids um, experience. But I think in the best cases, with the right intention, those kinds of programs that engage kids in the world in meaningful and authentic work, um, you know, are 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 not all good, but many of them are actually very effective um, about you trying to use the time outside of school in the most productive way possible while still maintaining that level of self-interest of the kid and basing it on what the kid is interested in. And I'd bring it back to the play and Peter, Peter Gray and, and many others work in regard to it and one of the things that he emphasizes is in play you have the freedom to quit which has a whole lot of other ramifications because then people need to be ethical and, and work together and communicate um, if you want people to keep playing. So I think that's a huge, um, again, control issue is if you have the freedom to quit. It's, it's truly your choice. And that sparks a, you know, several different questions that we could go off on, but it sounds like each one of us has already brought up this phrase or this term of play or playing. And I imagine each of you again has, you know, your own set of stories about how and why playing can actually lead to powerful learning. And I just wanted to see if you're also seeing. I know uh, Nikhil and Stephen, you guys kind of keep your finger on the pulse of you know, a lot of conversations that are happening in the, the education and, and unschooling and homeschooling space. Are you seeing more of a positive association? with play even within, you know, quote-unquote formal education environments? Yeah, can, no. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, you can go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I, I think there's a greater and greater acceptance of it. I mean, we're at a really interesting tipping point where, again, you have lawmakers who are pushing to develop legislation to, to make at a crime to you know leave your kid in a car and and certainly there are some cases where that you know, there are some 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 more stringent responses that need to be developed but you know on one hand you have that which is uh, sort of a, a group which is very much still in that mindset on the other hand you have unfortunately it's happening mostly in um, you know in private schools but uh, people who are like, we've lost our ever-loving minds and are really swinging in the completely opposite direction uh, to really support free play and sort of self-directed learning. And, and that is becoming, you know, you can see the upward trend uh, in the interest in that over the past couple of years. Um, and that's really exciting, I, I think, you know, per a little bit of uh, the previous comments, I think it's also really helpful to recognize that we're in a backswing. So we're really entering this backswing reaction to top-down controlled learning. And you know, the sort of bottom-up self-directed is, is awesome. It is fantastic. Uh, but it is only still one mode of learning, you know. And just as it's only one mode of play, there's also parallel play. There are all these other sort of modalities that, you know, because we're human and we like things black and white, uh, that we kind of are ignoring to a certain extent in some of the conversations right now. And so we're still, we're, we're moving into this backswing where 
Um, it's, it's free play all the time, and if it's not free play, if it's not purely from the agency of the kid, or this is, this is analogous across society, if it's not purely of the agency of a community that you're working in, then it doesn't have value, it's not valid. Um, but in fact, if you look at sort of developmental psychology, we know that that's not true. We know that, that people learn in a lot of different ways. They learn with others, uh, they learn through their parents, through their parents dragging them to things that they didn't see initially as being valuable but were pivotal. They uh, learn from, you know, creating stories under their staircase. Um, and I think it's as we move increasingly, as, as this becomes more and more mainstream, it's important to recognize that some of the aspects of the way that learning is occurring even right now are not necessarily bad. It's just one part of this larger spectrum and, and play is an essential part of that and for not for not just reasons of creativity and, and self-directed problem solving and things like that but also uh, a lot of the ways that we work, I don't call it play but it is and just the actual movement, the way that we pretty much have designed gym, uh, we're seeing you know, educational bottom lines out of that, not because of the typical modalities of looking at uh, sort of creative programming where you would say, oh, they're, you know, their behavior is improving because they're getting to be creative. No, actually, their behavior is improving because they get to move around and they get to build things at full scale and that's kinesthetic and it feels good. So it's a really exciting time to see us kind of teeter on this edge, but I think it's also important to be able to step back and, and look pretty critically at what's happening and, and uh, look at some of the nuances of, of, of what's what's happening as well and the different approaches that are out there. And, but I, I mean, I think on that point, I think we're, it, it, there's a twofold part to this. I think one, at one point you're seeing this criminalization of childhood where you're restricting public spaces for play, you're restricting the amount of movement children once had, kids don't walk to school as much, um, they, 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 don't, they, don't, they don't have unsupervised, unstructured play as much, um, but at the same time, I'm seeing that there is a movement, especially among the maker community, among child psychologists, among early childhood educators, that play is just instrumental to, to learning. Um, so you're bumping up against that almost unanimous conclusion among most people um, against the fact that you're seeing many test-driven reforms, uh, the, the decrease of time in, of recess, um, so you're, you're up against this, this massive school industrial complex that actually I, I find that is very much so against unstructured play in general and learning. Um, so I think we have to, we have to look, at, look at both aspects of that. There, there are also a lot of, um, I mean, there's, it's interesting if you, kind of depending on which niche you're talking about, the people who, who engage in research and practice around games, for example, um, you know, it's, a, it's quite a segmented group of people. That's sort of the online games people and they're the, the Institute of Play type people and the engagement games lab people at Emerson and so forth. And they, they're all very good about extracting the, at the, the sorry to use this word, but the affordances of, um, <laughs> of, um, of using games as a way to analyze systems or using games as a way to participate in political life. I mean, if you take engagement games lab, uh, I believe they're called Engagement Lab now. Um, you know, they use a, a game structure and a game, game platform in order to, to sort of reduce, to have civil conversations around important issues and to reduce tension and to create an environment that's playful. 
Um, and it's not, it's, it's less about sort of freeing kids up to be kids and more about um, providing a structure that is more civil around very important issues. And that, and, and so, you know, when we talk about play, I think sometimes the reaction um, in the educational world and even in the world of parents, I think, is, um, you know, they, they all, everybody values, understands the value of play, but they don't always necessarily value it in the same way that you might. Um, in an educational context, the context which is supposed to be serious, more serious and more about uh, achievement and, and getting into the right college and so forth. So I, I think in the context of schools, I think it's I think when having conversations with schools, it's important to talk about play and the use of games in a way that makes sense to teachers because they're still the ones who are having the most engagement with your kids. And also to put it in the context and also sort of identify and isolate the attributes that are most useful and to um, deep learning and engagement that come out of play and to identify those really clearly to educators so that they see the, the benefits that you guys or we all see in, in play outside of school. And Monica, in your work, um, what kind of examples or stories can you think of where play has been an important part of you know, even a, a child's development or becoming a better learner, a better version of themselves, a better person. Monica, I think you're muted there. Sorry about that. I guess the one specific example um, that comes up a lot that was seemed to be a revelation to us um, was when one of the kids um, made a comment that, um, like, it's legal for me to change my mind. It's it's okay for me to have yesterday had this dream and ambition, and today to have a different one. Um, and the whole idea of we're always experimenting. Um, so, like, to me that that act of whimsy which again sounds like we're not being serious enough um, but it's really how we're made um, so that the freedom and the permission to be whimsical and to follow um, follow your wanderings you know um, your rabbit holes I think technology is showing us what that capability is and allowing some of us to actually do that and, and putting back, if we need that serious note, putting back that serious note to it. I mean, we've got so many examples of um, Jack and Draka, um, Nikhil, um, just a bunch of younger people who, when they were allowed or they took the initiative to follow their own whimsy after something that they couldn't not do, you know, we do need to have enough space so that people can find that thing or that thing that might change tomorrow. But I, I guess, yeah, just the idea that when you're five or younger, um, we don't question you changing your mind every day. But when you're 30, um, it's ridiculous. You should have a 20-year plan. So, yeah, one of, I mean, in the first 15 minutes of any project that we do, we are building. And per what Monica was saying, um, you know, one of my tactics, I fail in the first 15 minutes. I publicly fail. I lose to an eight-year-old. And we are 
you know, designing and building at full scale, rapid prototyping. We don't, I actually ban drawing. And part of the reason is that, um, that we are pretty much making this highly public stage where people are experimenting and failing in the first 15 minutes and everyone can see it. And so within, internally within a team of young adults, um, you know, this process of iteration of rapid prototyping and rapid failure, uh, of the resilience and tenacity that are sort of coming out, uh, you know, that are required to, to move ahead in that, um, they're incredibly important. They're galvanizing uh, as a team. They're galvanizing individually, seeing that, you know, you can be an adult and be right and be wrong at the same time. Um, it's a wonderful thing. It's an empowering thing for them. But at the same time, um, you know, there is, in, in our work, there's very few tools that are more powerful um, at bringing people together and reframing conversations and senses of possibility and even action um, than, than play and building play. So even beyond their kind of rapid prototyping technique, which is play, um, using the creation of play um, in a community as a starting point for a much larger conversation about needs and opportunities using a building project as an asset mapping tool, uh, both from the standpoint of the, the young adults involved as well as, as it creating the context for conversation that allows us to get better stories, data, insights that builds community, etc. Um, and, you know, in that respect, play is this incredibly powerful tool um, for doing really awesome things. And, you know, it, it, we had, I think it was last summer, um, it was almost a heartbreaking, it was a wonderful and heartbreaking reflection all at once, but uh, there was this one young lady in Flint, Michigan that we were working with, and this is with Job Corps there, and, you know, so they've all, they've all either been through the, um, the the juvenile justice system, or, or they haven't gotten their high school diploma. They generally got in trouble in some manner or another. And, um, but they're learning a trade. And so we're, you know, we're out building rapid prototyping, this hybrid community meeting space, playground exercise course. And, uh, you know, they're only used to following plans. And they, some of them, especially the more experienced ones, were just fighting me tooth and nail the first week. And by the end of the week, though, um, you know, this, this one young lady in a reflection said, man, this, this was really, really hard for me because I was never allowed to play as a kid. And if only I had been able to play as a kid, you know, my life would have, would have been very different. But um, it was incredible to see, you know, we, so we did this first kind of prototyping and, and building of a temporary space and then got, had a community meeting there, got feedback and then came back two weeks later and built something more permanent based off of that community feedback. And once they were cracked open and they were allowed to play, they were allowed to build and they were allowed to imagine, imagine and trust that again, um, you know, it was, an, it was an incredible thing that then ultimately snowballed and bringing other people um, together in the community and they saw that they were doing that and they realized how they could be leaders and then that increases their tenacity and whatever, whatever. But, um, but I... I think just within this conversation, yeah, there are a few things more powerful than action, youth taking action and play. And Nikhil, you brought up the maker movement a little bit earlier as kind of 
maybe this example of helping kids become more curious and creative learners, maybe through, is it through, you know, hands-on production-centered activity? Is that kind of the main draw that you see is, you know, the powerful learning aspect? Or were there other things about the maker movement uh, from your studies and your observations that make for, for powerful learning for kids? That was for you, Nikhil, but anyone else can feel free to jump in if they like. Oh, you're muted there. There you go. Oh, might can be you hear me now? Yeah, there we go. Sorry, and it, it wasn't. I wasn't. It was wasn't clicking properly. No worries. Um, yeah, no. Um, no, I think it's. I think the maker movement is very fascinating because, um, and to give a little background on it, I think it, it really. Uh, it's been jumpstarting over the past recently, the past few years um, and especially when you go to um, like events like Maker Faire which are held all over all over the world in many different cities it's extraordinary to watch these young people just tinker and engage and build and construct and just collaborate with, the, with other people um, I think it's really, it's the manifestation of what we're talking about, the self-directed learning, play uh, learning by your curiosity and, and what you're most interested in. Um, I mean, I, those are the most engaged kids you will find. Um, and I think the maker movement is especially important. Um, there's a lot of spaces, maker spaces, that are opening up, especially for young people. Um, even And there are other, and other schools that are trying to take this on and trying to implement these practices within their own buildings themselves. Um, in Philadelphia, there's, um, there's, a, uh, there's a school called the uh, Workshop School, which, uh, which uh, uh, now is a... Uh, a public school that just opened um, last year by the city of Philadelphia um, after expanding from a pilot program and their whole, whole curriculum and, and the way they, they function is, is based on making and engineering uh, and, and, and robotics and they use all these different tools to help these low-income minority kids um, create projects and their own initiatives. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential in that um, and something to really um, look at. Um, FYI, we did a story about this, the workshop school um, when it was called the Sustainability Workshop um, as part of the Is School Enough right. Supplemental Stories. And um, it was interesting. Uh, I think I can say this publicly. The, the, um, the superintendent of schools in Philadelphia said, to um, to Simon, um, who runs the school, uh, Simon Hauger, uh, he came by one time unannounced and asked him if there was any way that the school system was getting in the way of what he was doing, um, because he he felt so positive about the work that the sustainability workshop now now I believe called the workshop school is doing, um, and so I think that that kind of th those kind of albeit private conversations superintendents are having with um, school leaders like Simon are important ones to have and give him a certain kind of validation of his work. But I, I totally agree that, that that is an example. I mean, it's interesting about the maker thing is that I, I think that's the I think that's the hardest um, 
I think it's a very important movement, but the hardest one for teachers to translate into the classroom um, for a whole host of reasons. Mostly, I think, because of the open-endedness of it um, and the sort of, you know, there's not such a, there aren't such restrictions on time and the amount of time you can spend trying to get things right, you know, which is a very inherent value of that kind of work. But I think it's very difficult for teachers in particular to figure out concrete ways to take all of these wonderful benefits of maker environments and translate those into schools. And what you see a lot of is um, maker um, maker spaces opening up in the after school time time, which may be the appropriate place for them. I don't know. Maybe it's just going to be too tough to integrate it into the classroom. But it is. But it is tough for them to kind of make that translation from. They see the inherent value of it in all the other attendant uh, characteristics of persistence and grit and failure and all that kind of stuff, but but they they still kind of see it as the thing that you would do outside of the classroom to 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 build up those those characteristics in yourself. Have you seen something else, Kale? I mean, I'd be interested. Yeah, to I mean, I think I I worry I I worry when we we think that the maker movement or these ideas should should just be part of the traditional classroom because um, when that happens, when my uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. I mean, I'm, I suspect that that you'll have grades. You'll you'll try to cr uh, create standards, and then you'll add a curriculum. Um, and right now, in its current form, it's a very free functioning um, model of learning where there aren't usually grades or tests. It's very much so project based, um, experiment based. And I think that's really the best form for it to flourish in, rather than try to kind of schoolify it, where you put the grades, the tests, the the traditional classroom into it, um, and I think the studio kind of setting, where you, which are usually in these maker spaces, is is actually it works so much better than if you just sat kids in desks and rows and and had a teacher just sit at the front of the classroom and tell them what to do. Yeah, well, I, I think we all share that skepticism around um, what's um, practical to do in a in an institutional educational environment. But the fact is that that's where most kids are getting their quote unquote education. For better or for worse, um, and I think there's a tendency right. to, and, and while we, we all celebrate, and me in particular because I documented the work that kids do outside of school, we we really do need to figure out some way of um, introducing all of the attendant values of, of maker spaces or design environments or gaming environments. We need to figure out ways to extract those and in, and and to some extent. And I going to sound like a wrong word, but institutionalize those things, because otherwise most kids aren't going to benefit from from those uh, from those those kinds of characteristics of learning that we all value so much. And perhaps a little bit of a thought exercise here, because it seems like one of the you know don't know again if this is the right word or not. Maybe one of the obstacles or the challenges to incorporating this kind of you know playful or maker spirit or vision into the classroom is there's not any specific mechanism or way where you can quote-unquote measure or assess the kind of learning that's going on aside from maybe long-term observation. Um, so I was wondering for Monica and Alex specifically in the work that you guys have been doing in out-of-school environments, how are you helping learners reflect on what they're learning through the activities that they're doing. Well, I I just want to 
Before we move on to that question, right. I just want to say that it's it's important to recognize that like running you know, like running a vibrant makerspace or growing a vibrant makerspace is not necessarily a simple thing. And, you know, um, that asking every teacher to kind of all of a sudden fully take that on, uh, you know, is a challenge. And, I, and, and part of that is also, you know, ditching the concept that, that a makerspace is a 3D printer. Right? or to have a makerspace, you have to have a 3D printer. I mean, there are some really, you know, like, I don't know, I grew up, we didn't have makerspaces. My favorite learning points in school were making those crazy-ass dioramas, you know, uh, for some project where I could have written a pay, I could have done a research paper, or I could have, you know, made a model um, of X, Y, or Z and written a smaller paper. Um, but you know, we've got to realize that a lot of that has been shoved out of the classroom. And that if you actually look at the fabric of even a place like Philadelphia, there have been a number of makerspaces that have made the grave error of not looking at things like the Philadelphia Museum of Art and some of the stuff that they have as a makerspace. And so they misread the market and they collapsed and failed. My point is that they're, you know, just getting these back into the classroom and by that I mean not, you know, blunt nose scissors, but actual, like, adult scissors. I feel like a lot of times 3D printers are, like, this way of avoiding the issue of, you know, we don't want to have kids have sharp things in classrooms. You can get great learning just with this and cardboard and packing tape. And you don't need to, you know, to know SketchUp or any other specialized program as a teacher to be able to facilitate some of that. So and I think in, in one respect, we need to lower the bar, redefine, and, and, or recognize that, they're, that making is a, is a much broader thing than these, these fairly insular and isolated makerspaces at points. Um, can you ask your question again? <laughs> Sorry, I have a diatribe about, like, don't get a, don't get a 3D printer. First get a, you know, a hot glue gun and a, and a pair of real scissors. But. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, look at, you know, Kane's Arcade as an yeah. example of the amazing stuff you can do with, you know, pretty much just cardboard. Um, but my main question was, it seems like one of the obstacles for incorporating this spirit, this vision into formal environments is there's no clear way to measure or assess the learning that's going on unless it's a little bit more of an informal observation or you know, did your experiment work or not. So I was wondering your line of work and Monica's line of work, how you're helping learners reflect on what they're actually learning. Yeah, I mean reflection is an essential part of, of our projects whether it has a particular educational end goal or not. I mean because our projects, are, every single one of them is inherently gray, every single one of them is about redefining sense of self and relationship to one another, at the very least, at the end of every day, we're reflecting individually and as a group. And especially because our projects tend to be fairly short, it's almost like it's not a boot camp, but you're trying to leverage that intensity to get people to sort of recognize new boundaries of what they think is possible individually and then as a team. Um, that reflection is an essential tool for ultimately, you know, creating something that no one thinks is possible that's meeting the significant need in the community, yet at the same time um, starting to help Tierra or Liza or, um, or Slay or anyone, you know, any one of our other sort of participants or team members 
realize the tremendous impact they're having and their tremendous agency as an individual and, and at the same time not lose those little things like, wow, I learned what an angle finder is today, <laughs> you know? Um, and it doesn't matter age-wise that a lot of what you're taught, a lot of what we're doing is building these sort of communities, these networked communities, analog network communities that ex then extend in the offline, excuse me, online world. But um, you're building relationships, and so that reflection is also essential for that that team building and, and creating these communities, these cultures of greatness, which ultimately, you know, that's what that's one of the reasons why growing a good makerspace is often quite quite hard, or even getting good learning because you have to like raise this bar on creating great things and so you know that reflection allows you to start to really build these connections that then build these social pressures that gets people to work harder and think more openly take more risks and fail more often than they ever have before along um the lines of your question and kind of what Steve had just said and in our premise really of equity of everyone getting a go you know hastening that equity um, <clears throat> really questioning the whole idea of measuring you know and who does the measuring um, so a focus that we've had has been on um, self-reflection as well um, if we really want to make this something for everyone again everyone today most people are in schools um, and so um, finding number one a problem that's deep enough um, to get to the heart and the soul um, and the root of everyone and finding a mechanism that's accessible and useful to everyone and then a system that's open enough to set everyone free and, and keep everyone free um, so our main idea is using technology um, to read, literally redefine public education so that the policies and the monies and resources are, are all redistributed, upcycled, um, with a focus on talking to yourself every day. Am I doing what matters? Um, and that, based on two conversations, talking to yourself every day and talking to others, um, attachment, um, being known by someone, the talking to others, and authenticity, um, talking to yourself and be, being truly the potential that you could be, the capacities that you have. Yeah, and, and if I just may add just one quick thing to that before we go into the next question. Um, I, yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree with Monica on that. I think the self-reflection, just talking to other people and documenting those conversations, I think are important. Um, and and we've Monica and I we've talked a lot about like digital portfolios for example and and I think they're they're um, I mean digital portfolios are I mean they're great tools to kind of document and show your work um, but I think we need to move away from this notion that we need to try to measure everything and we need to try to um, just 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 document it in a very narrow and a rigid format um, I think we should be learning for for learning's sake I think that. Um, oftentimes, we we're seeing in the past past decade, there's this just been this huge movement to quantify everything we're learning, to kind of bunch it up into into certain categories. And I think we learning is much more natural, and it should be um, uh, approached in that kind of format. Um, 
And but I think there's there's a, a great potential with with digital portfolios and and badges with the MacArthur Foundation and Mozilla have, have worked on, um, and and on that note, there was uh, what Chicago and other cities have been doing, the City of Learning and the Summer of Learning programs. Um, I think they're really great where they're having really just young people all over the city engage in various programs and activities and then be able to show this to their teacher or an employer or 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 college admissions officers um, and show that they actually were able to engage in this kind of project um, and that gives that kind of validation because I think we need we need to move away from this notion of of this cult of elite credentialism and move to more alternative forms of credential credentials that are um, more accessible and actually show what actually what people can can do. And for any open badges folks watching the recording out there, you got a shout out, so <laughs> thumbs up there. Um, this next question is something, uh, Nikhil, that you brought up kind of before our webinar started, where, you know, and I'm also reminded, Stephen, some of the documentaries you put forward and also some of the, you know, quote-unquote case studies and personal stories that the Connected Learning Alliance has started compiling. Um, a lot of those examples seem to be of kids who are already, you know, pretty self-motivated and self-directed and kind of have already identified what their interests and passions are. And I'm just wondering for the group, um, and again, this is a little bit more open-ended. I don't know that we're going to have some solid answers, but what are some ways that we could encourage more entrepreneurial learning, connected learning for kids that aren't quote-unquote autodidactic learners, that aren't self-motivated, that aren't you know, self-driven already? How do we help them out? I, I, I didn't take a stab at this. First, um, we should never use the word autodidact in front of them. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, but I would say that... Um, <clears throat> The one thing we could do, and again, I, I, I am sensitive to the fact that this is often easier said than done, and I'm not an educator, so I don't have to actually do this, but I'll say it anyway. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, I think the first thing we could do is, is to ask kids to do important things when they're in school, for example. Like we, you know, school, I think, to a large extent, is still so much of an abstraction. And uh, even in some pretty good project-based learning schools, um, the projects themselves don't necessarily have an actual impact on the world. They, they use real-world metaphors and analogs to get kids to think about their application in the world. Like, you know, how, would you, you know, how would you cure the problem of safe water, drinking safe water in Bangladesh? You know, that, that's based in a real-world problem, but it's not really the same problem as you might try to... It's not, you wouldn't solve that the same way that you, you would solve that if the water in your own area was un unclean. So I think, I think, you know, at a minimum, I think we could ask kids to solve authentic problems. I mean, Constance Steinkuller said this in his, in, his, in, in his School Enough, when she said that, you know, if you start... And she called it a radical idea, although I think it's actually quite a sound idea, which is if you start with a big problem outside of the classroom and then tool kids up in ways to solve that problem, um, they would, along the way, become quite adept and resourceful at using um, both core knowledge and critical thinking and creative problem-solving skills that we all claim to um, want to inculcate in our kids. Um, and 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 then and they would act, then they would actually be they would actually have a real effect on the world. And I think even if that world is just the community, and I think there's not enough of that 
in really genuine and authentic ways inside of schools. And I do think that that goes some distance to reaching those kids who are not autodidacts um, and, and, and involving and, and really asking them to do the hard work of thinking about how they might improve their own lives or how they might connect their, their, what they're interested in, what they're learning to what's happening to them in the real world. And, that, I mean, and again, that, that would be a start. And, and, and again, I don't think that's the panacea. And I think it's very, very difficult to do. But we need more of it because I think it's. It, I think school is too much of an abstraction in most cases. I think um, you know there there are two things that building off of what Steve said and um, one it's one thing that strikes me is you know we talk a lot about entrepreneurship and we talk about um, you know motivating how do we motivate kids to to go out and feel empowered and the like when in fact as teachers we often aren't ourselves. So, like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, if, if you're not going to be that problem solver, if you're not going to be invested in being a co-learner or a co-problem solver in, in this issue uh, or being an entrepreneur yourself, how can you either understand what you're, really legitimately understand what you're trying to get your kids to do or how can you really clearly show um, kids what's possible? And a lot of what we're doing of what's going to need to happen. It's happening now a little bit, but what is going to increasingly need to happen as we kind of go through this big reset is just that, you know, I think Kane's Arcade is a great example. There, there wasn't any lengthy meeting about this. There wasn't, uh, you know, a, a Rockefeller-funded retreat. It was a kid going out and making something, and it got on the Internet, and it got people really excited, and they thought that was possible, and then all of a sudden everyone's, like, you know, scaffolding off of this, you know, this nine-year-old. Um, so I think first off we have to be the problem solvers and the entrepreneurs that we and the self-directed learners that we want our um, young adults to be but then at the same time our you know our schools and our cities are crumbling um, there we're kind of on a bounce back in a lot of places but you know I think what is it half of our school facilities are inadequate and not just from a spatial standpoint but you know their handles missing in your classroom uh, you know that desk leg is broken um, the there's no garden outside. There's no place to sit. You know the the wayfinding in the school. The signage is awful. Um, and I think um, you know why aren't maker spaces actually as they're being developed in school? Why aren't those problems being seen as opportunities? I mean, you don't have to leave the school. <laughs> All right, the desk isn't working. Fix the desk. Um, and and I know I'm jumping across a couple of, of challenges there, but, but really there are problems all around us. And um, we found, you know, in our own work that, that when, when it is a real problem and young adults are solving that in a way that no one thinks is possible, um, that it's not really art. You know, it is meeting a legitimate need. That is what's transformational. That is what um, would excites them into doing some pretty incredible things, so taking risks to step outside who they think they're, you know, what they think they're capable of doing and what others think they're capable of doing, but then as well, you know, helps reframe, um, reframe their capacity in the eyes of their teachers and their peers in the community, which then changes the whole conversation about what school could be. I mean, it's scary stuff to switch to project-based learning, to inquiry-based learning for a lot of people, and we need to acknowledge that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's 
within our own work, it's really interesting to note that it's usually the A students who do really well and the C and below. And the A students are smart enough to understand the idiosyncrasies of what we're doing and they want to change the world and the, the C and below, the C minus and below are the students for whom learning has never um, met their needs. And uh, so, you know, action is what's transformative. Doing is what's transformative um, for, all of, for all of these kids. And in turn, that's what's transformative for, for helping council members, their parents, their teachers, etc., starting to be will putting them in the position where they're actually willing to take the risk of asking that question, oh, maybe not only we've have we thought about, you know, these young adults in the wrong way, but maybe we need to start seeing them as assets rather than something that needs to be coddled. Um, and we can actually take what we have to admit is a scary risk to start to rethink um, the structure of a school day or a classroom or whatever. Teens I mean, can show the way if we let them. <laughs> on the note of, of autodidacts and, and self-directed learning, I think this is an important discussion to have because um, a lot of people, I think, in the education community, when they talk about self-directed learning, they, they oftentimes uh, leave out the role of privilege in this. Um, and I think when we, I mean, for example, when we talk about college, um, and I'm not going to go into that discussion because that will be very <laughs> long and lengthy, um, but on the on discussion of college in terms of when we say, um, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Steve Jobs, they all dropped out of college. Uh, they were self-directed learners. So that shows how everybody can become self-directed learners and autodidacts. And so I, I would say that we need to understand that um, self-directed learning at its current form is just not accessible to people of, of lower income backgrounds. Um, and, and increasingly so because we're seeing public libraries be underfunded and defunded and shut down. We're seeing a lot of community centers um, closed down. We're seeing these spaces that in previous centuries and decades past that once that once allowed so many people to gain a self-education be crumbled and, and just be torn down. Um, so I think we need to look at that. The other part of this is that I think um, when people say, I, one of the arguments people always bring up to me is that, oh, my kid is not, is not self-directed. He can't he shouldn't be given this freedom because he he wants structure. He wants more more rules and, and somebody to tell them what what to do. Um, and what I find in that in a lot of these democratic and preschools that I, I visited and observed is that the kids really need to go through this process of of detox, this process of deschooling, where they understand and they come back to their natural form of learning, where they become detached from this notion that there's somebody that needs to be telling them what to do all the time. They need to be following. A, a set of rules or guidelines, and that process is very confusing and scary for a lot of a lot of young people, and it can take many months to even even years for some people who've been who've been kind of inculcated and um, and part of that that system. Um, so I think it's important to realize that um, that there's a lot of obstacles to achieve that self-direction and that autonomy and that agency. It can't just come overnight um, and you can't just expect young people to just go into that kind of style of learning uh, right off the bat. You need to uh, slowly wean them off of the traditional forms of education and bring them into a much more freer style of learning. Along those lines, um, I would say boldly that I think everyone is, self, is a self-motivated learner. The, the problem is that we keep imposing what they should learn, and so that makes them 
think that they're not a learner or that they're not in love with learning. Um, but again, to the equity issue, and we're in these places where we do have this assumed curriculum and such, um, suggestion would be um, that offer as much as you can spaces of permission where people have nothing to prove. Um, and I think the best way to get at that is relationship, which there's there are so many incredible um, people around that are really focusing on that relationship piece. And um, that is a way within the system that we have um, to embolden people um, to realize their innate ability to self-direct their learning. That's great advice, everybody. And hard to believe, but we are almost out of time. 60 minutes flies by per usual in these kind of conversations. Um, so real quick, for anyone who's watching this as a recording, uh, definitely recommend, please feel free to you know include comments below the video and keep this conversation going. Um, this wraps up our third webinar of this month-long series on Connected Learning TV. Um, but that doesn't mean that our conversations just have to end here as well. So please feel free to use the comments on connectedlearning.tv, on the Google Plus event page, and also on Twitter using the hashtag connectedlearning. And I wanted to also you know, do a quick shout out for uh, Steve has a, a great documentary series that talks about a lot of cool examples of this kind of connected learning, entrepreneurial learning. Um, one of the easiest ways to find that is check out edutopia.org and search for Is School Enough? There's a huge collection of resources there. And last but not least, hope you'll join us back here on next Thursday for our final webinar of the month. And we're going to be chatting with the founders of a program called Solutionary Congress. And that's a competition where uh, young learners kind of come from all over and tackle real world, real world problems. So just like we've been talking about here, it's uh, going to be a cool story to hear about. So hope you'll join us next week. And thank you again for everybody that joined us here today, Alex, Monica, Nikhil, and Steve. Um, sorry we ran out of time a little bit, but again, I hope we can keep this conversation going. So thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me.